Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Let me start with what we got wrong in Afghanistan. In the beginning, of course, we sought to maintain too light a footprint. We don't want to be the army of occupation. We want to get bin Laden and get out of here. This was Rumsfeld's conviction, don't plant a flag. I, at the time, didn't trust the Pakistanis, and I think the lesson is, looking back, we should have pushed the Pakistanis harder. I'm Daniel Lipman. I am a White House and Washington reporter for Politico. We talked to 17 architects of the post-9-11 world to get their candid points of view on what went right and what went wrong. Should we have gone into Iraq? No. And with the passage of time, they're much more candid in terms of what actually happened and the consequences of their decisions. You know, it was just a mistake. And that they have some regrets about uh, how the last 20 years have unfolded. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Welcome to this ABC News and Current Affairs special with extended coverage of the first strike by the United States and Britain against those accused of carrying out the September 11th. Officials say that American ground forces are now poised at the border. Some have already gone across the border. Uh, the major the transition from dictatorship to democracy will take time, but it is worth every effort. Our coalition will stay. Until our work is done. The long war in Iraq will come to an end by the end of this year. The transition in Afghanistan is moving forward, and our troops are finally coming home. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Daniel Lippman on how the architects of America's 9-11 response are looking back on the past 20 years. So a couple months ago, my colleague Brian Bender and I, we had the idea of talking to the people who were at the start of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars to try to get their perspective on what went right, but also what went wrong. And, you know, people can use that for the next few years, the next time we have a situation, hopefully not a terrorist attack, but uh, a situation where we might have to go to war again. And so some of the people that we talked to include retired General David Petraeus, who led U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and then the Middle East, as well as uh, being director of the CIA, uh, during this period, we never got ahead of the situation in Afghanistan. We completely missed the opportunity to start building host nation security forces in a serious way. If you John McLaughlin was the deputy director of the CIA in 2001. The CIA was charged with fighting, capturing, killing, if need be, those who had authored 9 11. I wouldn't say it was the right decision, it was the decision. <laughs> Uh, and another person uh, we talked to was Fran Townsend, who was the Homeland Security Advisor uh, for the second term of President Bush. If you asked me, would the Taliban be the governing body of Afghanistan and have the seat of Kabul 
20 years after 9-11, I would have thought you were crazy. Uh, as well as, you know, a total of 17 people we uh, talked to. So in your conversations, you focused on the two key components of how the U.S. responded to the September 11th attacks 20 years ago, the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq, which together cost trillions of dollars, led to the deaths of more than 7,000 U.S. troops and estimates of hundreds of thousands of lives overall, including people in Afghanistan and Iraq. I want to discuss both of those, beginning with Afghanistan, because it's obviously so front of mind for people right now, given what's happened over the past few weeks with the withdrawal. What did you learn about the U.S. decision to go to war and how the country has treated the war over the past two decades from your conversations? So what I learned was that if you had told them that after, you know, we launched this war in Afghanistan, that 20 years later, the Taliban would be back in control uh, of the country, everyone would have disbelieved that. And so, uh, because, you know, the reason that we had gone to Afghanistan was to remove the Taliban, which harbored al-Qaeda. And so a lot of people told us that uh, it was the wrong decision uh, to pull out um, because you would have to just go back in again, potentially. And, and you know, we don't want a another terrorist attack uh, that hits our shores because of that. But at the same time, everyone recognized that the wars had gone on too long uh, and that there wasn't a great strategy for standing up a government that was sustainable and uh, Afghan national security forces uh, that was that were willing to fight. And so uh, basically it's, it's very hard to set up a central government in a country that mostly does not uh, abide by one or does not, it's not in their uh, history uh, of a strong central government in Kabul. In Iraq, they have that history and, and that is not a foreign concept. In Afghanistan, it's a much more tribal country uh, where um, having a coalition government in Kabul just does not, is not often in the cards. Uh, And so people, of course, everyone agreed that it was the right decision to go in. But a lot of people told us that uh, maybe we could have thought through whether we should have pulled out after we got bin Laden. And uh, that, you know, one person told us that we should have tried much harder to get bin Laden in December of 2001 where we had him cornered in Tora Bora, but we didn't send enough forces there to to get him then. What about Iraq? Um, you were talking about the justification for going to Afghanistan involving the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Um, there's been immense criticism given the justification of the war in Iraq being weapons of mass destruction, the intelligence failure surrounding that, given that none were found. At the time, only one member of Congress, Representative Barbara Lee from California, voted against this. How are these officials looking back on the military decisions in Iraq? A lot of them regret the role they played in authorizing the war and pushing for it. I think we should have asked more about, okay, where are these weapons of mass destruction? Saddam himself was not very good at disabusing us of the fact that he didn't have any because he wanted the Iranians and others to think he might have them. 
And so Joe Lieberman, who was a strong hawk and really pushed for this war, he told us, quote, we got pretty good at overthrowing Arab Muslim dictators like Saddam Hussein, but what to do next? Uh, we weren't very informed, as was evidenced by our post-war policy in Iraq, which was a failure. Hmm. Uh, we talked to Tom Daschle and Trent Lott, and they both uh, said that we didn't have a proper plan, uh, and uh, Daschle regretted the role he played in setting up those authorization of military forces for uh, use in Iraq. Um, but others defended their decision, such as uh, Douglas Fife, uh, who said that it was a good idea to go in because uh, of the role that Saddam Hussein, you know, he was a murderous dictator, but also that it kind of checked Iran's nuclear ambitions uh, for a certain few years. Uh, and that if Iran had gone nuclear, then uh, a number of other countries, their rivals in the region would have also uh, started nuclear weapons programs. Uh, one other conversation I had was with Dan Bartlett, the White House communications director from 2001 to 2005, who said, if we had intelligence back then that there was no WMDs, of course we would not have gone into Iraq. Hmm. And so with the passage of time, you know, 20 years since 9-11, uh, that it has really provided uh, these former officials with the space to be much more candid with the decisions that they participated in and pushed for that didn't always turn out well for our country. It's fascinating listening to your interviews with these architects of the post 9-11 response, because one thing that really comes through is this sense of regret, but also this sense of sort of like, what else should we have done knowing what we knew at the time? What other decisions would we have made? I'm curious, like, how you as a reporter and as somebody who is, you know, doing these these sort of postmortems with officials who were key decision makers at the time and over the past 20 years of what we've done since September 11th, how is it changing the way you're thinking about what happened two decades ago and what's happened since then? Well, that's a great question, Jeremy. I think to put ourselves back in the days after 9-11, when I was only, you know, 11 and a half, you know, there was a sense that what else was going to happen? Was there, you know, there were anthrax attacks that started uh, a month or so later. Uh, remember, there was the sniper attack in the Washington, D.C. area. And so uh, there was a feeling that there were other attacks that were being prepped. And a lot of the people we talked to we're very proud of the fact that we have not been struck again at the at a level like 9/11. David Petraeus told us that if you look at the Americans killed by Islamic terrorists in the states who came from abroad, I think we're looking at very low numbers. And so, you know, Dan Bartlett told us that they had a whole motto of we have to fight them there instead of here. But if you take that with the case of Iraq, if we had not gone in, we would not see ISIS in Syria. We wouldn't have seen those beheadings. Those thousands of civilians would have not perished. And I, so I think the importance of intellectual humility is a key theme I take from here. And also that we can't really reshape every foreign country the way that we want it to be. And so you know, I talked to experts, I talked to the officials for this piece, and they say that uh, 
we really have to focus on where the threats are. And so we, to their credit, it's much harder to board a plane right now with any weapons. And so there has been a much, a very good hardening of our defenses. But at the same time, we've had a surveillance state that makes it hard to know if what you're talking about to your friends has been caught up in the NSA's dragnet over the years. Daniel Lipman, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Also today, the Biden administration is suing the state of Texas over its highly restrictive abortion law that the Supreme Court allowed to take effect last week. The law effectively bans most abortions by prohibiting the procedure after six weeks from conception, a period that is before when many people become aware they're pregnant. In a news conference on Thursday, Attorney General Merrick Garland called the measure, quote, clearly unconstitutional under longstanding Supreme Court precedent. And the FDA is ordering 5 million e-cigarette products off of the market. The move comes after the agency received more than 6 million applications from e-cig makers where they were required to demonstrate that their products were, quote, appropriate for the protection of public health and would be safe for current smokers and unappealing for non-smokers. FDA said on Thursday that it had acted on roughly 93% of those applications and that they banned products where the benefits to adult smokers don't outweigh, quote, documented risks to youth. The agency has not yet issued decisions on the industry's largest players, including Juul. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Stay tuned in just a sec to hear more about our new podcast coming next week called Global Insider. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening. Yep, we're rolling. I'm Ryan Heath, and for seven years, I've been writing a newsletter about global affairs, covering the CEOs who shaped the economy, the lawmakers who set the rules, and the innovators who bend them. In that time, I've gotten to know a lot of them and their world pretty well. What do you think the longest pause is someone's ever taken when you've asked them like a really hard question? Oh, that's easy. Um, it was Emmanuel Macron and I asked him when was the last time he'd built a piece of Ikea furniture and the dude could not answer the question. I think Tony Blair certainly flirts with his eyes. Is there an airport tip you have? There is an amazing bakery at Copenhagen Airport called Hakasuset. <laughs> I can never say it right. <laughs> now I'm doing a different kind of interview. With the same sources I've kept tabs on for years, more personal conversations that usually happen behind closed doors in Davos and the UN. Is it just something that you have to accept is out of your control now? Of course I'm worried. We're doing this in a pandemic. We all have to be worried. Every week, there'll be activists, regulators, business leaders, like NATO's Jens Stoltenberg and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. African leaders need to spend more time with their young people, and they need to empower them to lead in the future. The balance of power is always shifting. Global Insider is how you keep up. We launch September 15th. See you there. Laukehusa. Laukehusa. <laughs> we're, we're humans, not robots, so I can't make it sound like the robot.